Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Cavalry Audio. I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to Season 2 of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Clint, and thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? We are doing a compilation of the greatest hits, if you will, of the past. And we thought, hey, why not give you a taste of the best interviews you may have missed, the best survival stories and tips you may not have paid attention to last time. So hold on and get ready for Can You Survive This Podcast's Greatest Hits. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast. I appreciate everybody that's bought the rugged life. I really do appreciate that. Five stars and comments on Amazon. Keep it important as you uh, as you do your shopping on there. Um, also, of course, it is sold out in Walmart, but they are restocking. So if you go in there and you don't see it, it's okay. It's on its way. Um, other things, t-shirts. Once again, I get a lot of people asking what t-shirt am I wearing? It's violentnomad.com. It's all I wear. That's all we wear. Anybody I ever have on this show has their own apparel line too. So you don't have to wear mine. You can wear my guest too, but all my stuff is at violentnomad.com. And, uh, I think that's it. Favorite piece of gear. What's your favorite? If you had just one piece that you're like, man, I love that thing. What would it be? Wow. <laughs> I know. It's hard. Like tactical gear? Yeah, anything. That one, it can be the one little thing that you still look at. I have a couple of things that I look at and I go, you know what? I don't use it, but I'm never getting rid of it. <laughs> you know, it's just the favorite little thing. I, I, I don't know. For some reason, I'll save these these little favorites, even though I'm not currently using them. So, you know, I, I have stuff from around everywhere in this room, but... Yeah. I would say one of my coolest things is so these washitashis were handmade by Kiku in um, Japan. And he made these dual swords. And I had to travel to Tokyo on the outskirts of Tokyo and go to his hometown where Oda Nabagata, the, uh, the daimyo that, um, that killed the ninjas, right? Um, he resided <laughs> yeah. there, and then they make swords there. And Kiku uh, designed this blade, and it's freaking heavy. Look at it. 
It looks, yeah, that's some thick gauge. Uh, so he designed his blade. He, I, I went to his house, very traditional Japanese style house. I had to get into uh, a suit, and uh, he handed me uh, Heaven and Earth dual swords. Damn. And uh, what's really unique about these cold swords is they made it to the video game, you know, Heaven and Earth. Mm. Um, so I said, you know, that because it, it holds a lot of uh, significant meaning to me. Yeah, that's cool. Now the short ones. Now that go through. What's the naming? The the long sword, and you've got the the short, and then you've got that one, right? Those are the three. Yeah. So you have the yeah. katana is your. So this is um, a five hundred plus year old Tashi, and you look at the Tashi sword is more of a cavalry type of bin. Yeah. Yeah. Look at how long the handles are though back then, huh? Right. So cool. Yeah. And you see the clan symbol and the sheaf. Oh yeah. Right there in the center. Yeah. So it's all throughout the sheaf. And then this um is the katana. The katana is what the samurais carry. Yeah. This is five hundred plus year old Japan. Damn. Your clan symbol on the uh, Tatsuba, which is the handle. Yeah. That's and beautiful, then, you know, man. Um, the Washitashi, which is the, uh, the the shorter sword of the katana. Yeah. And Miyamoto Masashi, you know, that Ronin, uh, he mastered in the art of dual swords on heaven and earth is what he called his uh, form of Ishiru right heaven and earth so it was really cool that uh when kiko designed my washitashis he labeled it heaven and earth yeah dude that's awesome i love that kind of stuff and that's definitely the best piece of gear someone's picked <laughs> on the show so far let's dig into the fun stuff um the most dangerous situation that you i know we've you and you in a, in a career you have a several whether i was about training. to say in a fight with my wife <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah we have several depending on the era what about helicopters versus fixed wing uh <laughs> yeah yeah helicopter i had a couple stolen mid-flight and at the nighttime in afghanistan which is definitely scary it's like okay now we're gonna die in this right but uh that's that hint. i always meant bring up the whistling shit cans of death yeah right? that's yeah. helicopter there's uh 46 dude. <laughs> yeah. Right. Did, did you wrong? just die? Yeah, you know where I was. This is Spec Ops bird, man. <laughs> what are these techs doing? What is going on? <laughs> Freaking mechanics. Yeah, we had one. It was a training gig, and it was a it was a 47. And I'm sorry, the, 47. That's what yeah, I yeah, said 47. And it was the Chocolate Mountains in in Nevada, right? And it was at Fallon. I forgot what the hell we were doing out there, and we were flying to come back one night. And the pilots couldn't get over the mountain range because oh. of the winds. So it would it would come up, and I mean, you're looking down. You can see the top of a mountain. You know, you know the deal. Yeah, like yeah, five yeah, feet yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, and it was pushing into the wind and would not get over the mountain. So he would, then he would turn left, bank left, bank right, and of course the winds would catch those props and push you down. If it was like a, this, roller it was the craziest coaster, roller coaster. Oh, yeah, dude. And then he would try again and try again. And we're over comms going, are you? Are we at the lowest point? I mean, what are you doing? You trying? You aiming are for the highest? Are you a pilot? 
And anyway, we finally got over that night. But all oh, you're thinking about, God. well, if we run out of gas, we're going to use the wheels and just kind of yeah. off-road this over the mountaintop real quick. Yeah, yeah. we were debating. It was like, okay, we're just going to camp. He's going to land and we're going to camp out and wait mm. for the winds to die down. It's like, Dang, it was insane. Dude. But yeah. it was those moments on helicopters when you think, oh. I'd okay. probably support that decision. Now we're going to die. Yeah. We'll just go to sleep. It's yeah. fine. I just fine. land and it's camp good. out. It's, it's us. I've got food. That's right. <laughs> All right, so then you get into the teams, and then you ended up at, on the East Coast? Team two, yep. yep. Team yep. two. Team two, baby. That's like the, uh, the team one of the East Coast, which, for those of you who don't know, like team one is – it was called like Stalingrad or Stalin one or something. Uh, sure. Team one. It was Stalin team one <laughs> <laughs> because they were actually big on That's military bearing and all kinds Back of the in stuff. the day. I think yeah. they both were. Yeah. So team two yeah. had a reputation of that very hardcore disciplined group. Right. Of guys, yes, right? they did. Meanwhile, I was at team three, which was kind of middle ground and team five was like more of, Hey, let's go surfing. Right. You know, flip flops and have fun and party and, uh, it was more of the laid back team. As long as you do your job. That's right. As long as you can do your job. Yeah. And so now what your experience at team two, is it what you thought it was going to be? It or? was cool. Uh, the people are, I mean, I was kind of like nervous, obviously being the new guy, but dudes were cool. Um, I mean, there was a little bit of like, hey, new guy. I mean, what you'd expect, but no, it was awesome, man. What I, I, I thought, I thought the op tempo would be a little different, to be honest with you. And it, especially with what was going on, but it really wasn't. Yeah. Um, it I guess I thought lot. it would be more high speed than it was. And the only reason why I can say that now is being going to, you know, development group and then kind of comparing the two. But yeah. I mean, dude, it was awesome. Like learned so much there. Learned so much. The people that I got to work with, freaking awesome. And my troop chief and my troop commander, or excuse me, troop chief and my platoon chief were both ex damnet guys that came over oh awesome. so i like like yeah. this is awesome that's so it was like to... cqc all the time yeah, like, yeah. this is great <laughs> so i was ready for green team really. yeah i was i was ready to go no it's good to have mentors oh, like heck that yeah, man. my mentor my biggest mentor when i first showed up was uh master chief well, he was a senior chief at the time senior chief mike martin he was tattooed from you know the back of his ear all the way down literally to his big toe and he owned a <laughs> tattoo shop in ib he was a vietnam guy and uh, I mean, that's it was the Vietnam guys that held that rogue maverick mm -hmm. fuck you mentality right. for the SEAL teams. Why we don't do what all the other special operations guys do. Right. It was set by Vietnam guys. And so those were my mentors and experience. <clears throat> and then we saw with like the Eddie Gallagher story mm -hmm. where the, that shift like Eddie Gallagher is an old school mentality guy. Right. And then. He found himself surrounded by a whole bunch of like these, whatever, the newer version, whatever's the, going on in the SEAL teams. The, I don't know. The politically correct kind. Right. Yeah. Or something. And, uh, you know, and then he found himself, you know, in, in fucking prison or whatever. That's a whole other story. But it's I'm just kind of highlighting that there is the old school mentality versus now. I think what's going on is like this new school thing. And. Do you feel like the teams started to change yes. as you got out? I mean, yeah, I know when I was getting out, it started to get more political. I mean, as as the wars were going on, Afghanistan, Iraq were kicking off and then sporadic stuff around the globe. It was work based, yeah. like operation. What do you need? I don't care what you're wearing. Just do your job. Be here. Ready to go. Got your gun. Right. Let's go. And then that started kind of as we were pulling out and op tempo slowed down, we're taking on a new role, trying to get the Afghanis, Iraqis to do their own stuff in their country, which they should. Yeah. Um, it got more political. And then like, where's your colored shirt? Why haven't you shaved? 
Yeah. It, like dumb shit. Like, what does that mean? What does that matter? Oh, yeah. What does that matter? Like we're in our own little world here. Like d- we're doing our job and it's just, and I get presentation and military bear and all that crap. I get that, but that's not way it was. Just the, there is that shift for sure. When the political kind of comes in and I don't like that. I was getting out like right at that time. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. And like, I talked to guys that are still there. They're like, dude, you got out at the perfect time because the words were dying. Like it was dying. Yeah. Like it's not, they were still doing some cool stuff. But uh, it wasn't the op tempo wasn't the same. Right. I mean, you knew you on deployment, you're going to the, this country or that country and you're and you're getting it on. That yeah. was it. Yeah. And, it, and it's DAs. Everyone loves direct action. Right. It's like the Hollywood op. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who said it best? Olson or one of our admirals said, you know, what used to be the operation of a decade became an operation every night. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because that was never Because back in the day. You'd surveillance some guy got yeah. to go you know one group of guys yep. in the entire seal community got to do something cool yep. every now and then yeah and then before you know it all seals were boom, doing boom, cool boom, shit boom, every boom. night everyone's yeah. a combat veteran right going say from seal team one it was very highly disciplined seal team training was very strong very effective i went to war at seal team one loved it um learned a lot there and that that qualified me and, and caused me to perform very well in selection for the tier one level at dev group so I've got nothing but respect there, but the the budgets are so radically different. You know, you're talking yeah. uh, a budget that's that's larger at, at a tier one unit than all the other SEAL team uh, SEAL teams combined, right? As far as annual budget, so there's no comparison. Instead of having, um, you know, one support person for every ten or fifteen operators in and the the team, you've got five support personnel for every operator. Yeah, it's a radically different environment. So you're you're given a lot more responsibility and no excuse for failure. Basically, anything that you think you need as an operator to prepare for an operation can be made available to you if within reason. But I mean, some it's pretty big stuff. Yeah, you have no excuse for failure. It's on you. Big boy rules and the physical demands are greater the responsibility is inherently larger. And so going from a, a reg, what I call a regular SEAL team from SEAL team one to dev group riding around in a, in a six by an old Vietnam era six by, you know, is one thing or, or in a minivan <laughs> or riding around in nice rental cars because you've got sniper rifles that, you know, only fit in certain trunks and you have to be able to lock them up at certain places. And you're staying in hotel rooms instead of uh, barracks on bases yeah. it's just a different budget and you're able to live differently it's much more of a civilian life only you're doing super crazy spec op stuff at night you know um yeah. you're going to jump out of something at thirty-five thousand feet in one case with the full combat equipment and, and o2 and all that kind of stuff and it's just it's a different life it's a lot greater stress and responsibility but the assets are are overwhelming and it's it's like reading a novel, like a crazy adventure novel. And you're looking at each other going, my God, we're, we're living this. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is our lives. If, if only people knew. And so you just, you know, if you have discipline about you, you don't ever write about it. And you just file that away and like, okay, we got, <laughs> uh, we had a heck of a life here, man. Let's uh, make sure we got good health care afterward and try to make the best of the years. <laughs> that are left right and uh have some fun with it hey this is clint emerson retired navy seal i get a lot of questions about my morning routine so here it is in a nutshell 
5 a.m., wake up. First cup of coffee, I dump Bub's Naturals MCT oil in there. And then I mix it around with one of those little automatic stir spoon thingies that make it all frothy and creamy. And then my second cup, I dump Bub's Naturals collagen in there. Now, the reason I do both is the first one, MCT, fuels my brain. It gets me up, allows me to focus on whatever I've got going on. The second cup of coffee has collagen, which honestly, it's like lubrication for my joints. It makes my neck and my shoulders, my left hip and my left knee feel pretty damn good. And it wasn't until I went over to Australia that I realized that this stuff really does work. I was overseas for about 45 days. And in the first week, I wasn't so focused in the morning. In fact, I was a little foggy. And my neck was hurting. My shoulders were hurting. And I thought to myself, eh, it's just jet lag. Different pillow, a different mattress. And then it dawned on me, I don't have my bubs with me. The day I got back to the States, I immediately started back up, and within a week of being home, I was focused again, my joints didn't hurt, and I was like, holy, I can tell you that Bub's Naturals works. Great for your skin and hair, by the way. Everything feels good. Unlike a lot of supplements out there, it actually works, and that's the key takeaway here. It works. I'm telling you you will notice a difference. Check out bubsnaturals.com and order some MCT and collagen now. And don't forget to use promo code CANYOUSURVIVE. You've set seven world records already, correct? Or no, the, the, attempt, the attempt is to set seven. Currently, I have one. So okay, it, you have this, one out of the seven. Okay, you have one out of the seven exactly. So and and really, once this is all said and done, it may it may get up to eight. We're just we're kind of seeing how things go, but we're sticking with seven right now. Plus, the, the title just sounds better, seven for soldiers. But uh, currently, yeah. we've got uh, I've got one under the belt and uh, working on the rest. Uh, unfortunately, as I as I should actually be in the North Pole right now, uh, that got canceled with the Russian invasion of uh, of Ukraine one of the big companies that helps run the North Pole is a Russian company. Oh. So because of that, the season got canceled and the season's only about three weeks long each year at the end of March through like mid to late April. Man. So uh, we, we've got one more iron in the fire that we're working to try to get up this, up there this year. But for the last three or four years, uh, no one has been to North Pole. It's gotten canceled for various reasons, COVID you know, and, and now Russia. Uh, mm. So that's put a, a delay on a lot of this, but there's still a couple other things that we can do in the meantime. So what was the one you've completed already that you set a record? Yeah. On? So the, uh, so already this year, I've completed a number of the expeditions. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've summited, uh, the beginning of May 23 of last year. So we're a little, we're about what, 11 months into it is I've summited, uh, Mount Everest, um, uh, Denali, Kilimanjaro, Elbrus, Vinson, which is in Antarctica, Aconcagua, and then also I've skied to the South Pole. Nice. And, and, uh, and then the uh, the one record that I have is I was the first person to cross the Mojave Desert in Death Valley solo unsupported. So I did a crossing of 213 miles in uh, six days, 23 hours. Six days? Six days, 23 hours. Pulling <laughs> a 220-pound cart. And uh. then, uh, and yeah, that, that was interesting. When I, I mean, that's, that's where I kind of got the, the desert, you know, answers out of that one and then recently i just got back from rowing across the atlantic ocean uh we rode 3100 uh, 3, miles in uh, 53 days three hours and 30 minutes damn man 
That's fast. That's six hour mark. I can relate directly to that. That is that's moving out two hundred plus miles in yeah. It was six it was days. two it was two thirteen in, in six days twenty three hours. So it comes out to just over thirty miles a day. Yeah, something like that. And uh, you know, it was a good effort. I think I can do better. And uh, I may or may not be thinking about going back and and putting some more miles on that and see if I can't do it a little bit faster. I see Australia is uh, Australia in your in your. Future? Yeah, so so the last mountain that I need to finish off the Grand Slam, you, there's actually two options depending on how you define a continent. Uh, so there's two there's two lists that you can that you can do. You either do Mount Kosciuszko, which is on Australia proper, or you do Karsten's Pyramid, which is in uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, and, uh, so what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to do both of them. Is so Indonesia is currently open, but the region where the where Karsten's Pyramid is is not open. So as soon as that, that opens, I'll pop down there, climb Carson's and Kosciuszko. And that leaves then just the North Pole, which will probably be next April. You know, unfortunately, because of the of the delays to finish off the Explorers Grand Slam. Yeah. And are most of these solo or you got buddies or are you hiring guides? How are you kind of negotiating these things? Yeah, no, it's that's a good question. Is that uh, so on probably... Just under half of them is uh, I'm using uh, Ryan Waters, who's who's a good friend of mine, and uh, he he has a company called Mountain Professionals. Ryan was the first American to complete the full length uh, Explorers Grand Slam, so just it, it, he I think he's summited Everest six times now. So just yeah. the guy's just an absolute stud, been a mentor of mine when it comes to to mountains and poles. Uh, so whenever I can, I climb with him. But on three or four of them is I'm going just with uh, just with me and a guide. Got and on, as you probably know, on a lot of, on a lot of mountains, that is that you have to hire guides a lot of times, you know, to generate you know local business and and for a variety of reasons. So I, I personally like to go just with a guide, you know, when I can, and, and to stay out of the team environment. Yeah, that way you just accomplish the task and not worry about navigation and this and that. I mean, I'm sure you're keeping that stuff in check, but it's less stressful when you got someone who's done it already, you know, hundreds of times. It, it is. And it's also less stressful for me is, is not being on the teams is that, yeah. you know, this, preparing for this has been a, has been a full-time gig. And I mean, I've, I've poured everything that I am into it. So when I show up is I want people that, that have committed as well to, 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 to surround myself with. And for example, when we just did Elbrus this year, uh, on my, when I first summited it a couple of years ago, it took me like eight days, nine days this year, I went back and we did it in about 22 hours. And we did, we actually did more climbing than we did the first time. And you can't do speed like that in teams. Right. And we did, we did the same kind of rapid ascent on Aconcagua and also on Kilimanjaro, which you simply can't do, you know, having a team around you. Um, training. So now, obviously, you, well, maybe once you get going on this path, you just kind of keep going. But there had to have been a point where you laid a, a solid foundation in your human performance so that you could do all these things do you have a recommended you know diet and like workout that you favor more than others or how did you get to the point where you could pull all this off yeah you know it's it's a good question so in my in my background i was always strength and power is i played you know high school football college football then then played a little bit of of pro ball i had a a couple contract officers play pro ball uh, which i let you know i quit playing in my early 20s then from my early 20s to my late 30s, I was still uh, somewhat of a power athlete. Even though I wouldn't call myself an athlete, I was focused on power. I was just 
big squats, big deadlifts, which I, I enjoy lifting heavy stuff. Uh, so really, I had no endurance background whatsoever. Mm. And transitioning into this at 39 years old into such a, a high level of endurance took a tremendous toll on my body. And I really had to learn how to train for that because you can't use the same approach you do for strength and power. Uh, so with that, it's uh, I set up a, a program where it was uh, zone training, where for me, it was zones according to different heart rates. Yeah. And, and so whether I want to use, you know, like a, uh, a zone one, zone two, which is like, you know, utilizing fat for energy and just increasing cardiovascular capacity versus a zone three, zone four, which is more power output uh, is kind of how I, you know, put the, the training program together. About 90% of the training was done in a fasted state. So I would eat you know, the night before at maybe eight o'clock and then I'd train first thing in the morning and I wouldn't eat again until like noon to two in the afternoon. And I may go out and train between, you know, two to six hours, you know, completely fasted like that to get my body to, to, to recognize that it doesn't need external, external carbohydrates that I can utilize food as, or the, the stored fat as fuel, which is a, a tremendous benefit. The only time that I would eat before a workout is if I was doing say a, a high intensity cardio workout, like a zone three, zone four, or if I was hitting a big leg workout where I needed or like a, maybe a hundred, hundred pound pack carry up a steep hill where I really needed the, those carbs and that energy. Uh, and that was a tremendous benefit for me. Uh, on average, I would train about 20 hours a week. So from August 18 to our kickoff of March and uh, 23rd of last year uh, was 30 months. I trained 2,076 hours over that period. So a little, roughly about 800 hours a year. So it was, it was definitely a a full-time program. And lastly, with regards to the diet is mainly, I would just eat a very clean diet about six days out of the week. I'd have one cheat day. uh, And on a cheat day, I can eat anything and everything that I want to, but I was burning so many, so many calories. I mean, it really didn't matter. And then, uh, you know, protein is about a gram per pound of body weight. Uh, Fat is about, about 0.75 grams per pound, then I'd fill the rest in with carbs, depending on how much energy I expanded during the day. And it just, the, the last thing I'll say about it is that the, one of the toughest parts was the weight loss. Because mm. when I kicked off going to Everest, I was 202 pounds. When I first started my training, I was 242 pounds. <laughs> so, I, so I had to pull off 40 pounds of a lot of muscle. And, uh, and that, that was difficult, you know, to do, but it just, you know, that, that fasted cardio, uh, just does, does wonders. Yeah. So what you explained to me is intermittent fasting, which then led to that kind of ketosis state. And I'm sure you just got freaking ripped once it engaged. What's the most dangerous situation you feel like you've ever been in? (laughs) Military or or just in general, just in general, mainly where you've had a lot of lessons learned come out of it where you're like, Whoa, man, Wish I would have done this, yeah. this, or this, you know. Yeah, there's one actually, and it's in the prologue, epilogue of my of my book. It's um, you know, so when I was in Afghanistan, we used to work with the uh, you know secret service, and we used to go pick up Taliban agents. So I used to dress up as a local Taliban and drive into 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 Kandahar and and go pick up these agents. So we would do this day in day out. There's no point in us planning a route because every day, you know, when you go into the city. There'd be roadblocks, there'd be situations. So we knew where we were going and we just had to get there. And what would happen is I'd normally lead vehicle, me and one of my uh, one of the Afghan SF guys would be in the front of me. 
you know, we would drive by the target, second vehicle would pick up the target, third would make sure we've got no follow-up. You know, that's, that was our normal SOP without giving too much away. So I, you know, we do this day in, day out. This one day we went into town, the, the road that we initially wanted to take was blocked. So we, I then got diverted to right and it was just bumper to bumper traffic. And I, um, I just remember people, it was, it was a very narrow market street. There's people walking down the sides of the vehicles. And the people were tapping on the window and, and talking to me. And, and, I, and I would always direct them to, to, um, to Heckmat and he would do the talking. But there was a lot of attention. I, I couldn't, I don't like anything in my eyes. So I had a, lovely, a nice big black beard, no tan skin, turban, uh, looked the part, but a big beaming blue eyes. So initially <laughs> I thought, you know, I've been compromised. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, I, I said to Heckmat, I think we've been compromised. You know, it came up over the net, so it just goes radio silent. So in my head, I'm thinking, uh, you know, the worst case scenario, as you do, orange boiler suit, CNN tonight, nine o'clock news, (laughs) this guy. So in my head, I'm thinking about the IA drill, the immediate action drill, what I need to do. Obviously, I can't divulge that on this show. So, you know, I'm I'm thinking about that. And and the initial thing is to grab the weapon under my seat, which is a, a MP5 Kurt, so it's got no barrel, and you just empty the magazine 30 rounds into the windscreen gives yourself time to grab your weapon and then get on your flip-flops and start heading back to camp, which was about 18 miles as the crow flies from from this point. So here's <laughs> me in my head, you know, going over this situation, you know, planning it out. And just as I was about, you know, during this whole situation, the, the vehicles are slowly edging forward. So HQ on, said on your call, you you make the decision. So, okay, as I was just about to grab it, the second, luckily the second vehicle come by uh, around the corner. And my friend, um, Ads, he came up over the net and he's like, stop, stop, stop. So straight away, you just drop everything. You know, your, your whole body just freezes and I'll yeah. drop the weapon. Um, and he says, your, your turbine's caught in the door. So for me, it was like a real life lesson, how I misread a situation that I knew I shouldn't have been there. My senses were so heightened. Yeah. thinking the worst case scenario when in fact people have been generally nice and trying to help me. Um, so that's yeah. a real life for me. And in, in the fact, you know, there wasn't any explosions. It wasn't any shooting. It was just, you know, and I always say it when I do uh, lectures on security and things like that, you know, don't run into a situation, just step back, yeah. have a look. And that's what I didn't do. I was so immersed in it and uh, I knew that I shouldn't, been there so my senses were heightened so I wasn't making the right the right decisions I love that story because it supports what I put in uh, the first little book I ever did was escape the wolf and it's an awareness book and in there I would talk about like anytime you arrive into a new area new country you're going to be oversensitized your brain and everything is going to be trying to pay attention to everything because everything in front of you is new and you're gonna think that Everything is after you, right? You're going to see ghosts. You're going to see goblins. You're going to see everything that you think you can see <laughs> in that environment when the reality is it's nothing. It's just a new culture, a new place. So you got to almost step back from all of that uh, temporary paranoia, you know, which and, and just kind of drive forward. But keep your wits about you at the same time. But, man, that's a, yeah. that's a fucking great example of what uh, I've talked about in there. We will be right back after the break. SAS 
is a show, and this show is incredible. It emulates uh, lightly the SAS SBS selection process. And for those of you catching up, SAS SBS is, you know, the tier one forces uh, in England. And those guys go through a similar selection as any of us Navy SEALs or any other special operation guys here in the United States. And the show does this great job um, really putting the, the, the recruits through 14 days of kind of the sort of type of atmosphere that any regular Joe that signs up for the military and wants to be special they have to go through this, this selection process. And so the the UK one, correct me, Ollie, if, if I'm incorrect, was really a, you, you guys took on the average Joe, whereas in Australia, it's celebrities, right? Yeah, we did. I mean, the UK one was first targeted at, first of all, it was just men. So, you know, it was, it was true authenticity of the selection process in the UK. So, yeah. which at that time was only open to men. Um, and then we sort of evolved into opening that up to uh, both genders. Um, and, and then we sort of evolved into the celebrity version of the show. Um, obviously, SAS Australia, we, you know, we have done a, a non-celebrity version. But the main sort of primary um, uh, show is really about celebrities. And I do have to say that I love the celebrity one more than I do the non-celebrity. And the reason for that is because it absolutely shows and typifies the process and how it works on special forces selection. And that is for the viewer looking in, all these celebrities, we have a perception Everyone has a perception of who this person is. The media creates a perception of that person. So we then build how we perceive this per each individual celebrity. But then it shows how the process absolutely works because all the way through that process, it delivers a totally different person at the back end. Yeah, it does. And that is absolutely what happens on selection. Right. You know, people get such a, a, an internal view of who they really are. The ego's wiped out the way, you know, they're put into a, um, a, a point to a sort of theater where they feel, where they feel vulnerable. So their thoughts, feelings, actions, and reactions become organic and raw. They don't get to design the perfect outcome, which especially as a celebrity, they would always design in a perfect outcome to make them look good. Mm -hmm. So it shows that process working. And I can really relate to that. And I'm sure you can Clint on yeah, selection. Yeah you are a different person by the time you come out the back end. No doubt about it. I think you just hit like all those important features of a selection mm. and, and no doubt like those, those recruits, those celebrities, um, and you, yeah, you nailed it. They're used to, to a scripted life. And when they show yeah. up to SAS, it is completely unscripted. There is, mm -hmm. uh, it's the four of us and the, you know, 20 or 17 or whatever the number is of them. We're mm. all living together. It's real. You don't even really yeah. see cameramen or audio folks. No one's saying cut, repeat that line, please. You know, it is just raw and real. 
And that was the big surprise for me. You know, within 24 hours, I was like, holy shit, we're it's really the four of us actually running all this crap. <laughs> like yeah, that, was, yeah. that was the impressive and actually the coolest part of the deal was yeah. knowing that and, and being a part of it. And it was just and I mean, fuck, man, we had so much fun just yeah, just uh, getting through each of those days. Those long days didn't even seem long at all. You know, no. uh, hanging out with you and Aunt and Dean. I mean, it was just a an awesome experience. The Bachelor or SAS? You picked SAS. I and yeah yeah. I what's your main like? Because I, I would. Ha I mean, just from my perspective, yeah. you know, with the Bachelor, you're living with a bunch of women. In yeah. SAS, you are living pretty raw. With it's a co-ed environment. Um, yeah. Do you find that a little more? Even though it was it was roughing it. Uh, yeah. Did you find that a little more entertaining and kind of easier to deal with than a bunch of women in a, in a nice house? Or <laughs> what do you think? So I went to boarding school. So uh, the bachelor being, I think it was 23, 24 other women uh, was actually a whole lot of fun. And, but then it got quite difficult as well with all the women, because they're all fighting for this one person. And I think it started showing uh, later on towards, like, I think we we're down to last five and it's kind of like, do you want to talk to that other person? Because you're both after the same guy. So I think okay, I think that was a really hard aspect of it. And also oh, yeah. because it was the first time I'd ever done any TV or anything like that. So I was completely new. And like SAS, I walked into it going, oh, my God, these women are amazing. Like how am I even going to compete with these women? Because they're all incredible. And I... I think it was really tough because it was the first time I'd ever done this sort of thing. So one good thing I knew that I had on the other people going into SAS was that I kind of knew, even though it wasn't reality TV, I, I kind of knew what to expect uh, to an extent. So I, I kind of, yeah, used that to my advantage. And I did love um, being able to chat to the guys and the girls in SAS. But the one thing I didn't want to do, I was like, I'm not going to have a shower. I'm not going to like strip down because I know they'll definitely use it. So I'm like, nope, I'll have a shower. I think I had a shower maybe three times because I had to, because I had pepper spray and, and all the other stuff. So that I found that difficult and the bathroom situation with guys uh, yeah. were with the girls in the bachelor you actually had a proper toilet where you could shut the door so <laughs> water or fire you picked fire oh man the scary is they're both scary shit man <laughs> <laughs> so for listeners let's fill them in yeah we the first task in sas australia was we lit we lit you on fire and then you had so to sprint just... you had to sprint to a, a, a basically a river and put yourself out and then um, shortly after that, like a day or two later, I think, then it was the uh, then it was um, the beehive where we put you in water and then you had to, uh, you know, remain calm and not freak out um, because you're borderline drowning. So you picked fire, obviously, over you'd rather burn to death than drown, right? Oh, I would rather neither. But I mean, <laughs> for me, I didn't think, you know, on that show, I thought I was OK swimming until I went onto that show and um, I was trying to swim and I wasn't moving, you know, and. I started panicking and water was getting in my lungs. And I was like, shit, man, like, you know, at least on land, I can try to run. You know what I mean? I was a little bit more <laughs> <Yeah>. comfortable. <laughs> but I mean, when he, when Ant st stood in front of me and was like, you know, you, you run when I tell you to run, I was like, Jesus. And he couldn't feel that it was getting hot. You know, I was like, man, he can't feel what I'm feeling. Yeah. You know, so I kind of panicked a little bit, but I mean, I wouldn't, 
if I could dodge both, I definitely would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did good though, man. You did good. You, you were doing, you know, it wasn't until later we found out that, you know, obviously you had a serious injury and so uh, you were, you were pushing through it like a champ, obviously, because you're the champ. Was there a favorite moment in a, in a worse moment kind of through your, through your uh, time on SAS? Did you kind of have any um, kind of standout moments? I feel like there was, I mean, the first thing that, this is so weird, but the first thing that comes to my head as a standout thing that I liked was the pepper spray. <laughs> I love the pepper spray. It was weird because I liked that it hurt so much and I was able to fight through it. I love that, like, that I was the only one not buckling. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and you were there. Like, I was, I, I snapped a little bit for a second, but, I mean, I I felt like I handled that so much better than everyone else. And I, I like that because I like, pushing through pain. I like the mentality that needs to be pushed through pain and get things done through pain. I went into that show with a broken hand. I literally busted my hand three weeks before I was, I had a, um, a hand brace on my hand in that show, as you yeah, know, when I was right. taking, yeah. taking the brace off on for the activities just so I could do it. And every time I had to hold things like it was so much pain, but I just liked that challenge of proving that pain is in your head, you know? And, um, I really, weirdly enjoy that i mean um i've done it many times in my fight pushing through pain with my eye and my hand and snapped ankles and stuff so yeah i kind of enjoy that side and i um enjoyed i really enjoyed the um the assault courses i love that because you just smash you don't have to think just smash it you know what i mean yeah. i like things where i have to think and probably you know um i think the stuff that i obviously hated was all the water stuff i mean that fucking beehive was was just fucked like yeah. that was horrible. Um, I don't think much comes close to that. And also just um, being in, you know, with one thing about the SAS, I think that not taught me, but was interesting was um, obviously the first couple of days that I was really struggling with not being able to do things right or the best or like, I mean, I was just so pissed off that I wasn't doing it right, you know, and everyone in there was like, but you're still here or like you're still doing it. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm not fucking here for participation, you know. Like, I didn't come. I knew I'd still be here because I don't quit, and I knew I'd do it because I'm not going to say no. Nah, I'm not going to do it. Like, I don't do that. But I, so that's all my high expectations. But the fact that I wasn't doing it right, I was like, man, that's shit. Like, <laughs> you know. And then I started to, and even I was thinking, like, man, all this stuff that I teach my kids about, you know, that positive self-talk and negative self-talk. Like, I was really struggling with it myself, especially when I was constantly feeling like I was failing. It was really hard to keep positive especially in that environment where you can't escape your fucking thoughts because you don't have a phone you don't i can't just go smash it like you know the boxing bags or go because when you fail in, in in boxing or when you fail in in life I, I think in a way it shows you that's just one way how not to do things right so next time you do it you do it a different way but it was really hard for me to not yeah. to only have one to know because then i was just left on that well you're shit that's you know what i mean um, and that was really eye opening to me. Um, I was like, damn, <sighs> I need to like chill out <laughs> and not be so harsh on myself. I don't know if I've, I've changed much, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. You, <clears throat> you were really hard on yourself at the beginning. I remember that. And then you, you transitioned, you, uh, it was like a couple of days. Yeah. It was, it was several days there where you were just so hard on yourself, but I think that's normal. Like selection processes, no matter which military it takes the best athletes in the world, puts them in a position where they, or 
forces them into an experience they've never had before. They're used to winning, right? So they walk into something, think, I'm going to win. And then they realize, holy crap, I've never done this before. Then they find out yeah. that they're not good at that one little thing. And then it just buries them after that. And then, yeah. but here's the difference between you and them. Like me going through buds and seal training, you had some of the best athletes in the world quit on a regular basis because they couldn't handle failing something. But you, yeah. you had your issues, you punched through it, you transitioned, you literally flipped a switch. I remember one day, like mm. you could see it in your eyes, like now you were on, you were locked on. It yeah. took you a couple of days to get there and then boom. Yeah. But the difference yeah. is, is you didn't quit. You could have quit, but you didn't. You just kept no. driving forward and you figured out how to transition. And I think yeah. the key like to any of these types of programs is when you decide to just submit to it, right? You yeah. finally just give in. That's when you start actually doing well. Most people yeah. try to resist. They're resisting themselves. And they're not allowing themselves to just kind of submit to the process. But once you do, man, everything starts working out a whole lot better. We will be right back after the break. Your hypothetical survival scenario. So for this scenario, you are returning home from a short vacation. You stop at the grocery store on the outskirts of town for a snack for a rest, you know, before you start driving home, you are at least an hour from home, okay? As you kind of peruse the aisles, thinking, hmm, what do I want? Kit Kats? Or should I stay healthy and get a little, uh, those little vegetable, whatever, the carrot little packets with some ranch? Hmm. Gunshots ring out. Bang, bang, bang. People scream. Chaos ensues. And now there's an active shooter situation in the store. Okay? So first question. Do you A, stay low, zigzag to cover before assessing where the threat is coming from? Or B, stay in your position and just determine where the shots are coming from? I would zigzag, find out where the shots are coming because you always got to run, you know, hey, you got to run towards a danger. That's right. And it goes back yeah. to basic soldiering skills, right? Yeah. You hear gunshots, you basically just drop to the deck and hope someone calls, contact left, contact right, mm -hmm. you know? So same thing applies, like take cover and then, okay, now where the hell is that? You know, yep. where did it come from? Okay, good job. You are starting out with an A, an A plus. Oh, All right. So yeah, don't freeze, but you, and certainly get off the X. Staying low to the ground and finding cover gives you better chances of survival than freezing where you're at and looking around for the bad guy. So you stay low, you get moving. Next, do you, A, get behind a large rack of food in order to hide from the shooter, or B, stay low and zigzag over to one of those freestanding meat coolers? Oh, meat cooler. Right, and why? That I meat. know you know the answer. Well, that meat's going to stop that, some of the bullets. Right, cover yeah. versus concealment. Mm-hmm. So for you listeners, once again, if you can choose cover over concealment, you should. Now, that doesn't mean you're always going to have it right there readily available. No. That's why you use concealment in order to get to cover. But if cover is closer, then take cover. And reminder, you know, you guys have already heard this a thousand times, but cover is anything that stops bullets. Okay? Concealment just hides you, but bullets will fly right through it. Okay? Oh, yeah. And I like to compare it to vehicles. You're out in a parking lot. You can get behind the engine block or you can get behind the trunk. 
The trunk is hollow, bullets pass right through it, so always pick the engine block, all right? So it's kind of the same. When you're walking around a store, look for things that stop bullets. That should be your first choice. Okay. Um, now, you've taken cover behind the freestanding freezer. Gunshots continue. Do you, A, try to determine where the shots are coming from, or B, just sprint for an exit, which is on the other end of the store? No, you got to find out where the shots are coming from and stop it. That's right. Yes, you hit it right on. Get eyes on the shooter. And just a reminder, shots fired indoors is completely different than shots fired outdoors. Shots fired indoors become omnidirectional. You may not be able to determine the direction of gunfire and trust your ears. You have to end up trusting your eyes, which means take a minute, look, listen, and smell, and just take it all in and try and figure out where the bad guy is. Uh, that's going to do you... Um, like it's going to do you better than just trusting your ears by themselves okay out of all the active shootings only one of them has put on put ear pro on it was the walmart shooting um he put he actually put ear pro on as he walked in right a couple of years ago everyone else they don't bother which gives you as a person in that grocery store an advantage right as soon as that guy pulls the trigger that first gunshot I guarantee you, his ears are ringing. He's not going to hear you running up from behind him to tackle his ass and beat the shit out of him. He's not going to hear you flank him because, guess what? He's got tunnel vision. He's looking front side focus, and he is concentrating on what he's shooting. So don't think for a second because a shooter has a gun and you don't that somehow you're at a disadvantage. You're not, okay? He's deaf, and he's borderline blind, and you should take advantage of that, okay? That's just a little sidebar. Uh, there is no right or wrong answer with a lot of this stuff. I mean, because the situation dictates, and it's a it's a very dynamic, uh, high stress, zero time situation. Um, but like I've always said, you know, if you're thinking through these scenarios when you have plenty of time and zero stress, then it's allowing you to make decisions now while things are peaceful and quiet. There's no gunshots, so that when if this happens to you, you've already made the hard decisions. You already know what you're going to do. And that's really the goal. So even though it's further away, you choose to go that route because it's less dangerous. Um, and moving from cover to cover, you head to the rear exit. You pass through the rear employee-only area, and you find yourself at the rear exit. Do you A, exit quickly and run? Or B, slowly crack that rear door, peeking out to make sure the coast is clear? No, I'd crack it out. That's, I'd crack and take a look out. Well, congratulations, Jason. You have survived this podcast, huh. buddy. Great answers. Great details. Is there anything you would add to some of these scenarios out of your experience in law enforcement that, you know, people should do, think about? One last yeah. thing. Yeah, if yeah. you are a civilian, and yeah. as soon as law enforcement comes and it's clear and safe, identify yourself. If you're law enforcement and law enforcement comes, identify yourself because you don't want to be put down. You don't want blue yeah, on blue. Is, you don't blue Yeah. On so, what do you think is the best way for a civilian? Let's say the civi You don't want the cops thinking that the civilian is the active shooter, right? Which could yeah. be very easy to do, right? Mm -hmm. Cop could definitely kill a good Samaritan, you know, and 
it's a, it's a, it's cause it's such a dynamic situation. So what do you suggest? Is it hands up? I mean, what do you, what do you, what's kind of the, uh, what do you think the hands up is the best thing. Cause hands down by the waist, that's, that equals death. You know what I mean? You're always looking for that. If you're law enforcement, the first thing you're going to look at is the hands. What if I have my, my, if I have my, my pistol, for example, that I'm carrying every day, I just blasted a bunch of bad guys. Here comes mm-hmm. the cops pistol in my hand in the air. Now, nah, should I just throw on. that fucking thing away? Yeah. I'd place it on the ground. Just get rid and of then it. do that. Yeah. And okay. that's the same thing with law enforcement. One thing I do visualize a lot is if I do get an active shooter situation is in my little fanny pack, I have my creds. Yeah. And with law enforcement creds like me, because I'm fed, I have a little flap that goes over my badge. So I got to make sure when I pull out my badge that I pull that flap over and I'm holding up the badge. Yeah. So they can identify you can't you can just hold up your wallet and they're gonna be like who can, what the fuck's up with this guy but you have to show that badge you know? yeah, shit i'm doing that shit when the bear starts to come slowly in your direction now okay so do you a turn and run or b just stand calmly and still i feel like staying calm I feel like we ran that just like gives him like the prey to run after. <laughs> be like, oh, exactly. that looks fun. Like a cat, when they see something move, they want to get it, you know? Exactly. You nailed it. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna basically take a predator and and turn his instincts on when you, as soon as yeah. you start running. It is it's normal. It's almost like even for us as humans, you know, you something starts to run, you wanna chase it, you know. It's kinda yeah. It's kind of an instinct in all of us, predator, you know, apex mammals that we are um and you know especially with bears you know there's a lot of uh you know best practices and theories you see out there with bears like get big and say shoe bear shoe bear and you know basically you know treat it like a big rodent and scare it away but um you know only the survivors only the survivors know what really works (laughs) so but yeah, you want to you want to just remain calm at a minimum. Uh, so turning and running could trigger the bear's uh, you know predatory you know instincts like we talked about. But this does not seem to work as the bear is still headed your way. Okay, you remain calm. You're looking at it. He's looking at you. Luckily, the bear is not charging you though. Okay, there is a difference yeah. in their body language, right? If it's just meandering kind of in your direction. It's like okay, that's that's better than when he starts striking his big paw against the ground and starts huffing, and you know then the charge is probably next. So do you a get loud and get big, as I already kind of gave away, or b stay quiet and see what the bear does next? Oh, I would probably still stay quiet. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I don't. I, there's a part of me, too, that would probably be like, you know what? Why would I start yelling shoe bear, shoe bear and getting all big? And when, you know, but it's once again, the, the people who have survived say that this works. <laughs> but of course, dead people can't talk and they could have been waving <laughs> their arms and yelling and screaming. And well, <laughs> the right answer, according to some of the philosophy out there is get loud and get big. Uh, black bears, though, here's the thing. Black bears tend to be the least ferocious of bear, right? Uh, your brown bears, especially like your big Kodiak grizzly type brown bears, those are the ones that are very aggressive. And there's probably not really much you're going to do because if they're hungry, they're just, they don't care, right? 
Um, and then, of course, the most aggressive, because they're always hungry, are polar bears, right? Like oh, they, okay. Yeah, so it's usually the order is black bear, brown bear, then polar bear, uh, as far as levels of aggression. Um, so... Getting big and loud, waving your arms, and making a, a steady stream of sound can sometimes cause the bear to stop in its tracks and run off. This would not be recommended if it were a brown bear or a grizzly bear, as we already discussed. Sadly, though, none of your tactics work, okay? And the bear is getting closer and closer. So you might need to start getting ready to have the boxing run. match of your life, okay? <laughs> yeah. So, do you a... Get away from the bear by going back to the wreckage and climbing on top of it. <laughs> or B, lie down and play dead. Ooh. Yeah. I Tough one. should lie down. But I, I, I just think. Ugh. Yeah, it's, it's you got to pick like almost like what's the what's the least of the, the two threats. That's the word for. <laughs> Like, burning to death and fire or the bear right yeah it's like water or fire mm. both shit <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go with play dead yeah that is, it, it is it is another popular tactic with bears have you seen that Leo DiCaprio movie uh, I forgot the name of it where he uh, he doesn't really they speak did. The entire movie. I think he like won an Oscar too, and he didn't say like but three words in the entire movie. But he, there's a really great um, bear attack scene in there, and he does that. He plays, and of course, this is obviously Hollywood. It's not real, but he does play play dead. He gets super still, and you know, hopefully, tricks the bear into thinking that okay, this is this thing is dead. I don't, you know, yeah. I, this is no fun. Boring. I'm just gonna, yeah, it's yeah. boring. I'm gonna go somewhere else, you know. Um, but so there is there is some best practices out there that say, you know, to lay down and play dead and make yourself really unattractive to this uh, to this predator. Um, so you're right, according to these answers. All right. Good job. Um, while there is no tried and true answer for surviving a bear attack, it is often recommended to play dead. So the bear sees you as a non-threat. Um, and, you know, hopefully moves on. Also, bears are great climbers, so climbing on top of wreckage doesn't exactly keep the bear away, but it just puts you in yeah. flames, you know, and now you're just dealing with two threats at the same time. Yeah. Um, lying flat, okay, so there is a way to do this. Like, it's almost like what they trained us, you know, if a grenade gets thrown in your direction, you're basically, the body position protects you from any fragmentation, so... The rule is, is you put all your, you put your chest against the ground, you cross your legs, which by doing so, your femoral arteries run interior of your thighs, right? So when you cross your legs and you put your thighs together like that, you're actually protecting your femoral arteries. And then you're okay. taking your hands and clasping them behind your head. Your elbows come in tight. So now you're protecting the back of your neck. You're bringing your arms in tight around your head, protecting your head. You've got your organs, all your vital organs against the ground. And the only thing which is still bad that you're giving up is your spine. But you got to give yeah. up something. There's no perfect yeah, remedy yeah. to this, you know. But if you're going to play dead, make sure you do it in a way that protects you if, if the bear starts to claw and bite at you, okay? The bear is headed your way, and when he pauses by the wreckage, 
you remember you have a flare gun. <laughs> so, do you A, shoot the bear in the face with the flare gun and scare it off, or B, shoot the flare gun into the wreckage and blow the whole fucking thing up with the bear as well, right? Which one are you going to do? How far away am I from the wreckage? <laughs> oh, you're probably, what, 50 to 100, 100 feet away? You're not. You're not that far, so it's like... Aim for the big target or aim for the small target? The bear being the small target in this case. What happens if you hit him and just make him more angry? I think also shooting the flare gun into the wreckage and and getting and blowing that thing up, it also serves a secondary purpose, right? You're creating more Thanks. smoke and more flame for any rescue aircraft that are coming looking for you. And at the t- same time, potentially scaring that bear off. A large explosion yeah. will certainly make a bear run. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, think I, was just, I was more like, thinking, will it blow up and then hit me with all its bits? Like, am I too close? Like, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Well, you can get behind a tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All, all good thought processes. And uh, yeah, so congratulations. You got more right than wrong. So you have survived this podcast. Good job, Blonde Bomber. If oh. I get pulled over doing any bullshit right now in Washington, D.C. area, they they'd hook my ass up. They're like, oh, you're, an, you're a fed. I'm like, yeah. OK, well, hop in the back. <laughs> they don't care, man. Yeah, I, I actually experienced that. I lived up in D.C. for probably it was only like three years. And I um I was going from D.C. down to uh, Woodbridge to one of the FBI facilities. And I had Secret Service in the car with me. So we got in those HOV, right? Everywhere else, HOV means two or more. Yep. But in DC, oh no, you have two people in there. You get pulled over because you're supposed to have three. And I'm like, hey, what's up? I'm a, you know, I'm a team guy. And then the Secret Service, you know, he's like, yeah, and I'm Secret Service, and he's throwing his badge around. Or we're, we're kind of like, hey, you know, give us a break. And uh, yeah, no, not so much. Nope. Got a big old fat ticket. Because I didn't nope. have a third person in the vehicle with me. <laughs> you know about that stuff. I went to the spy museum, man. It's all about Clint Emerson at the spy museum. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> There's a little, little, little itty bitty ear thingy there. But yeah, they, and they took the best part. You know, they took the CIA came back and took my damn mask out of there. Did they, they really? They did. They took <sighs> it and they, they put it in their own museum, which is fucked up. You know, the the. Inside the CIA, you've got two museums at headquarters. You, I don't know if you've been over there, but you've got you got one that's like, well, they used to. I haven't been in a while, but they've got the one that's kind of dedicated to modern stuff, and then they've got one that's dedicated to like the OSS days and some pretty cool artifacts, I got to say. But supposedly they yeah. took it out of there to put in their own museum, which is bullshit. Yeah, I think I was over there like right before COVID or right after COVID, and I saw yeah, your little it, mask. I was like, yeah, there's a Clint Emerson. Yeah. Took some pictures of books down in the uh, the spy museum uh, shop. Yeah, yeah. I think I reposted them too. I appreciate yeah. that. It was awesome. And listeners, hey, you know, like I always say, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest and be safe out there till next time. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson.